The news continues, so let's turn things over now to CNN Tonight with Laura Coates, who, and I'm a really lucky guy, I get to co-anchor with all next week. I'm looking forward to it, Jim. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to your excellent reporting, as always. And I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Ukraine's president's new warning for the entire world. Be prepared for the possibility that Putin could go nuclear at some point in this war. And Vladimir Zelensky says that that should worry, in fact, the entire globe. And it certainly is a very concerning thought. It came in a rare, exclusive new interview with CNN's Jake Tapper. And in that one-on-one, Jake asked Zelensky about the huge news of the sinking of Russia's flagship battleship in the Black Sea. Wait until you hear what the president said about that in a few moments. The U.S. said today, with a lot more certainty, by the way, that it was Ukrainian missiles that downed the Moskva, not some accidental fire, as Moscow claims. Ukraine now expects Russia to increase its attacks in revenge, but a military spokesman says, quote, we are ready. Now, Russia has been hitting Ukraine especially hard today, striking a military facility on the outskirts of the capital of Kyiv. Lots of shelling and airstrikes in the southeastern region of Donbass, where a major Russian offensive is expected in the next coming days. Strikes also reported across Kharkiv in the north, where at least 10 civilians were killed earlier. And cluster bombs reportedly killed five civilians in the southern city of Mykolaiv. When will this stop? And we're hearing that more than 900 bodies of civilians, 900 bodies, have been discovered in the Kyiv region just since the Russian forces have pulled out. 900 human beings. And those are only the ones that have been found so far. It is all so horrific. But we have to keep shining light on these atrocities. The world cannot look away. So in that interest, let's go to live to CNN's Phil Black, who's in Key to see what's happening there tonight. Phil, what can you tell us about what's happening on the ground there right now? Laura, the Ukrainian military says it is expecting, preparing for, perhaps already receiving Russian retaliation and revenge. Revenge for... Uh, the Ukraine-claimed strike against the Moskva, the Russian Navy flagship uh, of its Black Sea fleet. Uh, Ukraine says it struck that vessel with two missiles, created a fire, sunk the vessel. Russia acknowledges the the vessel has gone down because of fire, but doesn't mention the vessels. Uh, Overnight in Kiev, there was a missile strike on the outskirts here in the city, which struck a, a military site which Russia says was responsible for building and maintaining anti-air but also anti-ship missiles. Its announcement suggested that that strike was in response to something it's been warning about through this week, which is an accusation that Ukraine has been preparing attacks against Russian targets on Russian Federation soil. Uh, But the Ukrainian military believes that it won't be forgiven for targeting the Moskva. It says that it knows that hitting that ship was more than just uh, hitting another Russian military asset. That was a strike against Russia's prestige, against, against its imperial ambitions. And it won't be for, that won't be forgotten quickly, Laura. I mean, the idea of not being forgiven is really just a chilling statement and sentiment to really convey. And I, and doubt, I don't doubt at all that that's what they feel. And it's just striking, given especially what we've seen in places like Bucha, because you spoke to survivors of what can only be described as a massacre in Bucha. What did those survivors tell you? When you walk the streets of Bucha and talk to people, everyone you meet has 
a traumatic story or, or stories, really. They've all lived through an extraordinarily dark, difficult, distressing time. They've all seen death. They've all lost people, whether it's uh, family or friends or at the very least uh, neighbors. So everyone has these stories to tell. Everyone has seen those bodies on the streets, those images which so shocked the world when the Russian forces first withdrew. Those bodies have now been collected. But what is still continuing there is this large operation to recover, uh, that is exhume, the many bodies, so many bodies that, have, that were in fact buried during the period of Russia's occupation, whether that was in the central mass grave site in Butcher or the many other smaller shallow graves that people dug where they could, when they thought they could, when they thought it was safe uh, to do so. All of that is ongoing and the idea is to try and recover and account for everyone who did not survive that period of Russian occupation. The inhumanity is just so vile. I mean, every one of those people that you've seen on the screen, someone's looking for them. They meant something to somebody. As my father always says, everyone was someone's star once. And I just, it's unbelievable to see what's happening. Phil Black, thank you so much. The Ukrainian President Zelensky was weighing in on the Moscow sinking we just spoke about with Phil, an exclusive interview with Jake Tapper. Ukraine's president saying the downing of Russia's flagship in the Black Sea is important. Here's more. A Russian warship, the Moskva, the one that Ukrainian soldiers told to F off, um, sank. Um, the Russians say, and the Russians are liars, but the Russians say it sank on its own. Can you offer some clarity and evidence as to what happened to that ship? We know that it does not exist anymore. For us, it is a strong weapon against our country. So its sinking is not a tragedy for us. I want you, the rest of the people, to realize that. The less weapons the Russian Federation that attacked our country has, the better for us, the less capable they are. This is important. And about what happened to it, the history will tell. Do you have any idea how many Ukrainian soldiers or Ukrainian civilians have been killed? I know. I know about... How many? As of now, based on the information we have, because it's very difficult to talk about civilians, since south of our country where the towns and cities are blocked. Kyrgyzstan, Berdansk, Mariupol, further east, the area to the east where, where Volnavaha is. We just don't know how many people have died in that area that is blocked. Let's take Volnavaha as an example. Volnavaha, as other towns, are empty. They are all destroyed. There are no people there. So it's difficult to talk about it now. As to our military, out of the numbers we have, we think that we lost 2,500 to 3,000. In comparison with the Russian military, who lost about 19 to 20,000. That's the comparison. But we have about 10,000 injured. And it's hard to say how many will survive. 
поранених у нас десь біля 10 тисяч. I'm sure you have seen the video of the Ukrainian mom finding her son in a yeah. well and her sorrow, her crying just is devastating to hear. And you have seen a lot of videos like that. What is it like for you as the president of this country to see those videos, to hear the crying of the moms? This is the scariest I have seen in my life in principle. I look at this first of all as a father. It hurts so, so much. It's a tragedy. It's suffering. I won't be able to imagine the scale of suffering of these people, of this woman. It is a family's tragedy. It's a disaster. It's the dreams and the life you've just lost. We live for our kids. That's true. Kids are the best we were given by God and by family. It is a great pain for me. I can't watch it as a father. Only because all you want after this is revenge and to kill. I have to watch as the president of the state where a lot of people have died and lost their loved ones. And there are millions of people who want to live. All of us want to fight. But we all have to do our best for this war not to be endless. The longer it is, the more we would lose. All these losses will be just like that one. Joining me now is Jake Tapper in Kyiv, Ukraine. Jake, you had an extraordinarily compelling interview with President Zelensky. And everyone has been watching this man from the beginning of this invasion, even before, and have been watching and wondering what he has been like. What has been the mood in conversing with him? What was he thinking and dealing with in that moment? I mean, the emotional turmoil of a nation is on his shoulders, let alone the physical destruction of a nation he holds so dear. Well, it was a pretty far and wide-ranging interview, so we touched on a, a lot of subjects when we started talking uh, before the interview began. Um, I asked him about his kids, and we bonded over the fact that both of us have teenage daughters who uh, have limited interest in talking to their fathers. Um, so he was uh, very candid and charming at times, but, you know, as the subject shifted to more uh, important life or death issues. He was at times defiant, at times angry, at times, um, you know, disappointed in the world. Uh, very uh, honest. Uh, he could be diplomatic. If I asked him, a, I asked him a question about that. Basically, um, he could have taken a shot at French President Macron uh, for taking issue with Joe Biden, President Biden, calling what's happening here a genocide. He didn't. He just said he disagreed. So. Uh, he could be diplomatic. He also didn't uh, beat his chest about the, the sinking uh, of that uh, Russian uh, ship. Um, but he was very candid uh, and human. And I, you know, he, we interview politicians for a living, Laura, you and I and, and our colleagues, and, and uh, I tend not to be too super impressed with politicians, but he was a pretty impressive guy, uh, especially considering what he's going through. 
Well, the idea of him being disappointed with the world is probably an understatement for the range of emotion he has. And just given the idea of how diplomatic he must still be, hoping for there to be some change, I, I wonder in the conversation, I mean, we talk about here in the United States of America, obviously, our president having the threat possible of danger. But here and there, excuse me, in Kiev, Kiev Ukraine, he is under constant threat. He is literally in the heart of the beast. He, his, secu- his security is never quite promised. Did that take a toll on the way in which he was able to think and deal with these circumstances? Because he's been very focused, as you know, in particular on one area, um, in one region in particular. Is that coming from some sense of an actual security threat to himself right now? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I don't think just him, but I think most people in Ukraine, especially uh, in the, in the in, uh, Kiev and to the east, uh, feel vulnerable, and certainly there's nothing more that uh, than Vladimir Putin would like than than him dead, uh, and he's aware of that. And I asked him actually about it's possible you might not make it out of this war alive. How do you want people in Ukraine? How do you want your children to remember you? And he he was very humble about it. He doesn't want to be remembered as a hero. He just wants to be remembered as a as a good citizen and, and, and family member and, and somebody who loved his country. So it is something on his mind. Um, and obviously the security around him was uh, incredibly intense, uh, the kind of security even beyond uh, what you would uh, go through to interview, um, you know, President, President Biden, for example. Um, but, but that said, I mean, it wasn't, he, he wasn't paranoid or jumpy or anything like that. He was just in his secure location doing his job uh, and focused. Uh, and a big part of his job, I think it's obvious to see, is, a, is communicating with the world as to what's going on. I mean, he, is, he does a lot of interviews. He did a very lengthy interview with us. He did 60 Minutes a week ago. Um, he did an interview with uh, Jeffrey Goldberg and Ann, Ann Applebaum of The Atlantic. I mean, he wants to get his message out, so that's part of it. But I did not get the sense that he uh, felt overly burdened by uh, the threat on his life. And in fact, I talked to his chief of staff, Andre Yermak, for an interview that's going to air Monday on The Lead. And, and Yermak said there was never any question from the very beginning uh, Zelensky was never going to leave. He was always going to stay and try to run the country no matter what was going to come his way. Well, it goes back to that statement early on when he made that statement of, I don't need a ride right? He wanted to stay and fight for his country. And it's evident in the interview you give as I well. Ride, Thank I you. need ammunition. I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. He has been evidently def- and defiant and with good reason. And of course, that interview talking about the devastation and how as a father, it weighs on him day and day to think about the tragedy and the fatalities and those who are st- still fighting for their home. Jake, a great interview. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. And you can see Jake's full exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on State of the Union. That's Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern and again at noon only on CNN. The head of the International Criminal Court called the Ukraine a crime scene as he and other prosecutors worked to gather evidence of violations of international law. We're going to talk to a former war crimes prosecutor on just how this process works and where he sees this investigation heading. That's coming up next. The U.N. estimates say that nearly 2,000 civilians have been killed in Ukraine since the Russian invasion began. 
Of course, it warns that the actual death toll might be far higher. And images like the one I'm about to show you are very disturbing, but equally important to remember what is happening there. Just in the days since Russia retreated from the Kyiv region, a single region, over 900 bodies have been found. And some of those bodies have clear signs of torture. This is just the beginning of the evidence that will ultimately be gathered in the hopes of bringing those who are responsible for this to justice. Joining me now is Stephen Rapp, a former war crimes prosecutor and former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues. Stephen, what we've been seeing is unbelievably inhumane and horrific. And as we're talking about the gathering of evidence, normally we're talking about things that might be in retrospect. This is an active war going on. Tell me a little bit about what that process of gathering investigations and information is like when you've got the active war and having other nations having to come to try to help. Well, obviously, uh, people that are gathering this evidence are doing it at, at great risk. And uh, it's, it's wonderful that various countries are, are sending in teams uh, to assist the Ukrainian prosecutor. And, of course, we've got the International Criminal Court uh, that has jurisdiction of the situation because Ukraine gave it to, to the ICC uh, eight years ago uh, and can potentially uh, prosecute uh, uh, right up to the top of the Russian chain of command to President Putin. Now, we know, of course, that the ICC you mentioned is the most likely venue to be able to hold those who are responsible accountable. But I do want there's a there's a history, as you know, that it's not an instantaneous prosecution. It can take a long time, sometimes a long time, including years. What is the thought in terms of how to evaluate and assess how long this process may take, given, again, that we're in an active war, the invasion is still ongoing, and the gathering information? I mean, is there a certain threshold that will have to be met before they can proceed with an actual prosecution and longer have the investigation? Well, of course, we're, we're talking both about the Ukrainian prosecutor who has the potential of, of filing cases uh, much sooner, particularly of, of prisoners who've been taken and of commanding officers against whom uh, uh, she may be able to develop evidence of, of their involvements in the killing of Busha uh, and, and torture and rape and, and the horrendous uh, crimes that we've seen in your reports. Uh, as far as the ICC is concerned, uh, uh, they will also look for suspects that they can get into custody soon. But what their focus needs to be the higher level individuals. Uh, Ukraine can't prosecute uh, the leaders of another country. It's not permitted under international law. That takes an international tribunal. And, and in the past, we've seen international prosecutors uh, move uh, uh, quite quickly. Uh, the, uh, the Yugoslavia tribunal uh, prosecutor uh, uh, moved against uh, President Milosevic within about 45 days of the beginning of the ethnic cleansing uh, in, in Kosovo, even while the crime was, was ongoing. Now, of course, he wasn't arrested right away, but within 16 months, he couldn't steal enough votes to stay in power. And within 25 months, he, he was in The Hague, uh, though many people thought at the time it'd be impossible. Uh, in, in other cases, such as uh, Libya, even though, of course, President Gaddafi uh, died uh, hiding out in the battlefield, uh, uh, he was indicted about uh, 45 days after the, uh, the ICC gained jurisdiction. So uh, there could be uh, charges relatively soon. It's yeah. a question of how challenging it is to put the cases together. And, and there are really two types of cases here. There's the, the bombardment of Mariupol, the sort of a, uh, the, the, which may, in fact, uh, uh, according to the mayor, have more than 10,000 dead uh, in a place like that. And whether that can be shown to be a war crime or whether those are legitimate targets that were shot. And then we have these crimes uh, 
of, of, of murder and, and rape and, and torture like, you're, like we've seen in your reports, uh, but of course attributing those to the high command, uh, they'll always argue those are rogue elements doing those things. Of course. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll need to be additional proof there. Well, on those notions, and again, I want to take a step back for a second because we have the colloquial discussions about war crimes generally, and then we have what is actually required to prove these cases, to prove what it meets the definition of the Geneva Convention and, and beyond. And so when you're looking at it, I think it's interesting, you've talked about this issue before. We hear, of course, the president speak about genocide, which I note, the U.S. has only formally recognized genocide, I think, in eight places over the course of at least modern American history. Look at the, the screen on, on their screen right now. But you talk about the idea of starvation also as a tactic of genocide or a tactic of a war crime. Tell me a little bit more about how that something like that could be proven, because obviously one of the reactions and retorts will often be it was not a deliberate attempt to try to harm civilians. You think the starvation aspect of it is quite different, though. Well, I think the Starvation Act is indeed. Now, now do keep in mind when you, when you carpet bomb a city and, and you make no d d distinction between military and civilian targets, that is a, is, is a war crime. Uh, but when you actually cut off food and medicine to the civilian population, uh, then you are actually intentionally harming the civilian population. And so the intentionality is, is much clearer in that situation, both as uh, to, uh, to show that you're intentionally harming them, but also uh, to the extent that uh, uh, you cut off that, that food uh, uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, you've got the war crime of, of, of starvation. So the kind of thing that's happening in Mariupol that's been besieged now for seven weeks and, and with hardly any humanitarian access and with people actually bombed when they're trying to leave the city, uh, that kind of situation I think is a very strong case to attribute responsibility for war crimes right up the chain of command because those aren't rogue elements doing those, uh, those crimes. The, the, that's the Russian Air Force. That's the Russian army doing those things and it's answering directly to Vladimir Putin. Uh, the cases in, in places like Busha uh, do require uh, trying to understand what's happening on the battlefield, who's making those orders, who's taking those decisions. Uh, but even there, in international law, uh, the top command is responsible for those acts if they have notice of them or mm. have reason to know and fail to take action to prevent or punish. And all we get from Putin is, uh, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? It's mm. all fake. There's no, uh, there's no good faith effort to investigate yeah. any of this or to crack down on any of it, which indicates really that they're doing what uh, they want them to do. Stephen, that point to me is so important to think about because oftentimes intentionality is what is allowing people to evade prosecution because they're able to find some way to justify or say that it was not deliberate. But as you described it and thinking about how to go up the chain of command, I bet that's part of the holistic approach the investigators are looking at. Stephen Rapp, thank you so much. I appreciate hearing your expertise. Good to be with you, Laura. And you know, as we discussed, there's so much suffering. And amid so much suffering, frankly, it's remarkable that many Ukrainian students are still keeping up their studies. And perhaps even more remarkable that many teachers are finding the strength to keep educating them. And you're about to meet two of those incredible examples of resilience when CNN Tonight returns. The war in Ukraine has had a particularly cruel impact on children, and not just those who have been tragically killed. Take a look at these photos of a school in Bordyanka destroyed in Russian attacks. 
It's sadly just one of many schools to have been destroyed. To educating Ukrainian children as safely as possible, well, many schools are now holding classes online for those who are still able to attend. Joining us now is Oksana Matayish. She's the head of the educational nonprofit Teach for Ukraine. And we're also joined by one of the students in her program, 16-year-old Irina, who is in Kyiv. I'm so glad to see both of you here tonight, and I'm eager to speak to you about your experiences. Oksana, you know, I understand that there has been a horrible impact on the program that you run, including the death of at least one of the, of the fellows in the program over this past weekend, a 21-year-old by the name of Julia. I'm so sorry for your loss. Tell me about her. Mm, morning. Um, so, yeah, I, Julia was one of our fellows of 2021 cohort. She was a math teacher, and she was also a math genius. Um, we found out about her death at the beginning of March. Um, she, she, before the war, she was teaching in one of the small communities in the Dnipropetrovsk region, but then she went back to her uh, hometown, which is Kharkiv, the second largest city that has been under the heavy shelling since day one. And uh, we know that she's been, she had been volunteering very actively. And on the 3rd of March, we lost uh, the connection with her. And this is we, when we suspected something wrong was happening. And in two days, we found out that she was uh, killed while volunteering by the Russian missile in, in the central part of Kharkiv, unfortunately. I'm so sorry to hear about that. And there, I know there are so many others who are still, even in the program, continuing to teach, continuing to try to be there and provide some semblance of a safe space for the students who are desperate, frankly, to have that sense of normalcy, to have that connection. What has it been like for the teachers in the program in general to know that in many respects they are that safe space and lifeline? Um, so again, before the war, our teachers used to teach in, in different regions of Ukraine. And when the large-scale invasion started, uh, everybody need, needed to, to go to a safe place. And for the first two weeks, we thought that, you know, maybe education process will be stopped as the Ministry of Education announced two weeks of break. But then after two weeks, uh, we had some hope because the ministry decided to resume distance learning in the regions that have not been suffering from from military actions, and you know that was uh, so much hope for for our teachers, for our fellows, mm-hmm. because they've been in touch with their uh, students from day one, and we knew that students were eager to get back to this normalcy, even online. While you know during the COVID, they were not so much eager to be joining online classes, right? Well, but yeah. when uh, when ac- yeah, for well, them, I want to bring uh, in one you, of those students know, if I. I want to bring in your student if yeah. I can just now because I want to make sure that I hear from her. Irene, Irina, excuse me. I, I know that this has been something extraordinarily difficult for the students in the program and for young people in general all across the world watching what's going on. Tell me about what has been your experience um, in Ukraine. What has been your feeling about how this has really changed the world that you know? I was really upset when I hear that the uh, war was started and... I just, uh, um, I just didn't know what to think, because uh, uh, my uh, previous life just uh, cut it, just uh, cut uh, down, and my dreams um, came away from me. And now I must uh, to fight. I must fight to uh, to bring them. Uh, um, 
um, bring them more, yeah. uh, one more time uh, and uh, um, and I must start to um, I must be brave uh, I think uh, we all must be brave to uh, win that this uh, unreasonable and uh, just um, horrible war when I see uh, what what is uh, um, I just uh, I want to cry sometimes, and uh, uh, I want to uh, hear from someone that all is all just end. Mm. But I did. I don't. I don't hear it uh, from uh, somebody, and uh, from anybody. It's devastating to hear from Irina and her experiences. I see you nodding your head as well, Oksana, and just thinking about the dreams that she says she doesn't have, the, the feeling of the devastation of it. You know, what goes through your head? I know that it can be a very difficult program when a student doesn't show up one day or is not somehow in, in the classroom setting. What goes through your mind? Well, you know, um, quite a few of our school partners um, allocated in the Kyiv region, right? As you, as you mentioned in the beginning, one of the schools uh, was in, is on Borodanka and was um, heavily damaged. And we still have, uh, you know, some one or two children missing in, in, in some classes as well as teachers, right? So this is devastating not to be able <sighs> even to hear the news uh, that they're 100% alive and that everything is all right. Um, I mean, we, of course, we cannot say this for sure because a lot of, of course, you know, families have been moving around and, you know, including leaving Ukraine. Uh, but still the number of children that have been somehow back to online teaching which is 3.5 million uh, out of 4.2 million, right? According to the ministry, is already a great, uh, you know, number to be inspired with, no matter the distance learning. You know, Oksana and Irina, thank you for your time and to telling us about what it's like for your experiences and for the work that you're continuing to do. May the dreams come back. We're all watching. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to continue our war coverage. But next, another CNN exclusive. Newly revealed text messages from two Republican members of Congress. They aggressively pushed the Trump White House to turn over the election results, but they changed their minds. Why? That's next. A CNN exclusive revealing text messages between two of then-President Trump's most vocal supporters in Congress and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows. They show a complete 180 on efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Ryan Nobles has the receipts. Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, two of former President Donald Trump's most loyal defenders in Congress. But in dozens of private texts to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, a picture emerges of how both went from aiding the effort to challenge the election results to ultimately warning against it. The texts obtained by CNN show how they were trying to help initially, but by the end, raised concerns to Trump's top deputy about his campaign's effort to stand in the way of the certification of the 2020 election. We're driving a stake in the heart of the federal republic, Roy warned Meadows in a text message on January 1st that is in possession of the January 6th Select Committee. All my friends here in the His stark warning came after weeks of begging Meadows for hard evidence of election fraud and concerns that the lack of specific evidence was a real problem for the Trump legal team. We must urge the president to tone down the rhetoric. 
he wrote to Meadows on November 9th. Why is the attorney general Roy did believe that there were problems with the election. In early December, he went to the House floor, imploring his colleagues to look into the thin examples of fraud. The American people are raising legitimate questions about our elections, and this body is missing in action and doing nothing. Like Roy, Senator Mike Lee started out hopeful that there was a path to challenge the election results. In early November, he touted the work of conservative lawyer Sidney Powell, encouraging Meadows to get her an audience with the president, calling her a, quote, straight shooter. But less than two weeks later, Powell appeared with Rudy Giuliani in what would become an infamous press conference where the duo made wild, baseless claims about the election. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it. Lee then changed his tune, calling Powell a liability and turning his focus to touting attorney John Eastman. Lee pushed a plan to convince state legislatures to offer up a set of alternate electors. When that plan fizzled, Lee decided he was no longer on board. He texted Meadows on December 16th, quote, I think we're now past the point where we can expect anyone will do it without some direction and a strong evidentiary argument. Both Lee and Roy ultimately chose not to join other Republicans to vote against certifying the election. Our job is to open and then count. Open, then count. That's it. That's all there is. Privately, they were even more emphatic about the fool's errand Trump's team was on. The president should call everyone off. It's the only path, Roy texted Meadows on December 31st. While Lee argued the effort was on dangerous constitutional ground. Three days before January 6th, he warned, I know only that this will end badly for the president unless we have the Constitution on our side. They did not. But the Trump team and a group of loyal Republicans went ahead with their plan anyway. As it became clear their effort would not be successful, hundreds of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in protest. As the violence was raging, Roy texted Meadows, fix this now. Does the gentleman from Texas... He then went to the House floor and placed the blame squarely at President Trump's feet. And the president should never have spun up certain Americans to believe something that simply cannot be. And Laura, both of these congressional offices did respond to our exclusive reporting. Senator Mike Lee's office saying that they believe the senator was transparent during this period of time. And there's nothing in these texts that contradict what he was saying publicly. Meanwhile, Congressman Chip Roy tweeted out a response to our reporting. He said that he's only going to say this once. No apologies for my private texts or public positions to those on the left or the right. I stand behind seeking truth fighting nonsense, and then acting in defense of the Constitution. Of course, all these text messages already in the possession of the January 6th Select Committee, and they continue to be a key part of that investigation. Laura? Ryan, thank you so much. We'll be right back. A question. How does the UN Security Council work when Russia is a permanent member of the council with veto power? all while Putin wages a brutal war on Ukraine. Well, here's CNN's chief political analyst, Gloria Borger. It didn't take a translation to feel President Zelensky's outrage. Where is the security that the Security Council needs to guarantee? It's not there. Then the final insult. Without action, then the next option would be dissolve yourself altogether. Well, he was absolutely right. And, and I thought one more convert to understanding what, what's wrong with the United Nations. It's 
political institutions are fundamentally broken. Former UN Ambassador John Bolton has never been a United Nations booster. I think it is unfixable. Neither has Liz Cheney. It is not the kind of effective entity people hoped it would be when it was created. That was in 1945, when the World War II victors established the UN Security Council with five permanent members. Today, those are the U.S., France, the U.K., China, and Russia, each with veto power, as Joseph Stalin himself insisted. The world has changed, but the council still remains largely as it was 77 years ago. That is, Russia has the power to veto any resolution it opposes. It's like giving a senator on the floor a veto over any legislation without any override. (laughs) Exactly. And what we're seeing is when there's a fundamental disagreement among the permanent members, nothing happens. Suggestions to reform the council by adding more permanent members or removing vetoes altogether have been non-starters. As former U.N. Ambassador Bill Richardson points out, it's all about keeping power. I'm being honest with you. I don't think anyone's going to want to give up their veto. And Russia's not about to vote itself off the Security Council either. Although weeks ago, it was condemned twice by the U.N. General Assembly. But those were in non-binding resolutions. Russia was also thrown off the Human Rights Council. But even that wasn't a unanimous decision. Here's the real headline. A majority of the members of the United Nations did not vote to expel Russia. What does that tell you? It tells you Russia has significant support around the world. What Putin really cares about is the stature permanent membership on the Security Council confers. Now, in the real world, Russia is not that important. It's China and the U.S. that are the dominant players. But in the Security Council, the Russians stand as equals to the U.S., and they're very, very proud of having that status. All of which leaves the Security Council paralyzed. And if the UN can't stop what's happening in Ukraine, what's it for? The UN is for airing publicly the tragedies of the world, like the refugee crisis in Ukraine, like the possible war crimes. At the same time, the UN is providing food. The UN is providing refugee assistance. Yet, in a bizarre-looking glass moment on TV... Special military operation in the Donbass. Russia chaired the Security Council session as weapons were unleashed in Ukraine. Diplomacy could not stop the killing. A point the Ukrainian ambassador made recently as he read a letter from a nine-year-old boy to his dead mother. You are the best mama in the world. I will never forget you. Such letters should not have to be written. If they are, it means that something has gone terribly wrong, including here at the United Nations. Even so, Laura, no matter how many times the Ukrainians ask for it, reform of the UN Security Council is not about to happen anytime soon, if ever. Gloria Borger, thank you so much. And thank you for watching. And be sure to tune in next week for CNN Tonight at 9 Eastern when I'll co-host with Jim Shudo, who will be live from Ukraine. The news continues next here on CNN. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.